Let's turn our Bibles to Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. The Bible gives us an insight into the people of God of the Old Testament and shows us some of the excuses they had for not bearing the fruit that they should have. When God said, what more could have been done to my vineyard? Why is it bringing forth wild grapes? Well, they had their reasons. And I want to share just a few of those with you very quickly to point out that we usually have our excuses why we're not everything that we ought to be. They had them. We have them. They're wrong. They're foolish. It's scornful when you make up an excuse for bad behavior. You're foolish. You're wicked when you have bad behavior. But if you make up an excuse for it, then you become a scorner. Because you're mocking the God who's trying to get your attention and trying to justify your foolishness. Ezekiel chapter 18 has one of them. One that you're familiar with and one that includes the metaphor of a grape. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The excuse here was that it's our fathers that have misbehaved, and we're the ones getting in trouble for it because we've been pretty good. And so the Lord is telling them, you're not going to be able to use that excuse anymore. That is not the case. The analogy being the fathers ate the sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. The fathers were bad. God's judgment's coming on the children because of the fathers. Oh no. He said all the souls of the men are mine. The fathers are mine. The sons are mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And he goes through the whole chapter of Ezekiel 18 and points out that if a wicked man... Though he's lived wickedly, were to repent of his wickedness and to pursue righteousness, he shall live. But if a righteous man forsakes his righteousness and choose to live wickedly, he shall die. But here's an excuse. Well, I was just born in the wrong family. Well, I just have some bad habits. And I don't know how you might phrase this particular sin or this particular excuse, but it's unacceptable to the Lord. And he says it'll never be used again because all souls are mine. Jeremiah chapter 7 has an excuse. If you think that there is residual protection, you know, in military terms, there's collateral damage. But there's also an expression of residual protection that by being coming into this assembly, being related to a family that worships in here, or coming here, that you're going to have protection because of that, and therefore you can live kind of casually. Israel had that excuse. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye truly amend your ways and your doings, if ye truly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, And shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. 
Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. This is taking confidence in God's past deliverance, your confidence in His present deliverance, that you can live casually because you've got the true worship of God. We read the King James Bible. We try to follow the New Testament Scriptures in the way that we worship God. But there can be no comfort in doing those things unless you're living righteously. They were taking comfort in the fact that they knew they had the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. Behold, ye trust in lying words. That will not save you from the God that is looking for good grapes. Those are wild grapes. Those are scornful and presumptuous grapes that think you can live any way you want to and there's some residual protection by being attached to the proper worship of God. An excuse that doesn't work. How about the book of Haggai? Toward the end of your Old Testament. Little Haggai. One of the prophets, along with Zechariah, that God sent to stir up the regathered Jews that had come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple according to the promise of God after 70 years in captivity. This is procrastinating. How many times do we hear the truth and we're convicted and we say to ourselves in some fashion, I need to do that. I need to do that. Or I'm going to do that. Or how many times do young people say, when I'm older, I'm going to get serious. When you are convicted, as I've tried to teach you, run with that conviction right then. Confess your sins even while I'm speaking. And resolve in your heart that you're going to live differently. Don't say, I need to do anything. Do it. Make the change. Watch this. These are their excuses. And God... God preserved these excuses by inspiration so that we can see that the people of God have been quite ingenious in coming up with excuses as to why they lived foolishly. The book of Haggai. Haggai has been sent to stir them up to build the temple. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Right off the bat, here's the message. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. They said it's just not a good time to build the house of the Lord. But guess what they had taken time to do? To build their own finished houses. When you've got a ceiling put in, it's a finished off. It's not just roughed in. It's a finished house. That's what the point is here. It was time for you to finish your houses. Why isn't it time to finish the Lord's house? Do you ever let anything get in front of you of making a change in your life? Let's say you resolve that you need to be reading the Bible more on a daily basis. Have you ever come to the end of a day or the end of a week and said, I was just too busy? Haggai 1 says, consider your ways. Because you had time to do about a hundred other things in the 168 hours that are in a week. 
the 1,440 minutes that are in a day, you had plenty of time to do other things, but you didn't have time to put the Lord first. He looks, he measures, he says, what more could have been done to my vineyard? I looked for grapes, and I got wild grapes. And when you say, it's, I just didn't have enough time, or it's not the time, or I'm going to get serious, or I need to do that, he says to you, consider your ways. Because you have time for everything else, you better make time for the Lord. There's several in Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to leave them for you to find. Go on a discovery search of Jeremiah 2 and find at least two other excuses that come up in that one chapter where, where the Bible quotes what Israel is saying to justify them not repenting. Look at Malachi. We've already been to Malachi 1. Let's go to Malachi 3. One more from, one more of these excuses. Don't blame your fathers. Don't blame your family. Don't blame any family traditions or habits. Every soul is mine. The soul that liveth, I mean, the soul that sinneth it shall die, and the soul that lives righteously it shall live. Don't think there's residual value in being a member of this church because there isn't. Don't justify by to, to procrastinate and do things later. Malachi chapter 1 was lukewarm religion in action is making a statement. Remember the words in Malachi 1, because you've got to get these words to understand Malachi 1. In that ye say. Sometimes we say, sometimes we may use the words, in that ye say, and we refer to a person's actual stated words. But that's not the case in Malachi chapter 1. It's actions that imply words. And the actions were bringing less than their best, and in those actions, they were saying, in effect, the table of the Lord is contemptible. I despise the name of the Lord. And they were saying, wherein did we despise thy name? In that you brought less than your best, you did that. So remember that your actions make statements to God. And I think that would help check us if we were to think about what are our statements making. I mean, what are our lives our actions actually saying to God, if you boiled it down, I hate your law. Your law is too confining. I would rather live like the world in this particular area. Just get it right down to what it says in its effect. Here's the last one that I want to give you. There's, there's more. Justifying sins of omission because you're not guilty of sins of commission. Watch in Malachi chapter 3. This is sweet. You all know these verses. But I want you to think of them from a little different angle. Verse 8. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. I'm not preaching about money. Although money is part of you being good grapes. Malachi 3, 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings, ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. And you know what it goes on to say? It goes on to say, if you'll bring your tithes and your offerings in and pay them, I'll pour you out a blessing from heaven that you can't receive. And I'll hold back the destroyer that's been devouring you and impoverishing you. But my point is not that so much as this. Will a man rob God? You have robbed me. We haven't robbed you. 
Because they're looking at the sin of commission. And that is actually going and breaking into God's house, taking something out of it and selling it at the pawn shop. When he was looking at the fact that their omission of paying tithes and offerings like they should have was in effect the same as robbing God. It was an, it was an omission of what they should have done that was robbing God of what he deserved, what he expected and required. When do we rob God? That is the scornful attitude of someone trying to justify their neglect of serving God with their whole heart. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything that bad. What about your omissions? What about your reading of His Word? What about your time in prayer? What about your singing? What about your love and service of the brethren? All the things that you can omit and say, I don't do drugs, I haven't committed murder this week, and I haven't committed adultery. Wherein have we robbed thee? Excuses that we make up. Weren't they ingenious? And aren't we? Why'd you do it? You ask your child. Don't even ask it. Learn not to ask that question. They'll come up with some of the most ridiculous reasons. And it doesn't matter. They've done something wrong. We don't want excuses. The people of God have made excuses for a long time. We don't want any in our lives, families, marriages, children, church. Let's look at a couple of examples. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I believe this was preached to you last Sunday. 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel and Agag. Hopefully the story is fresh in your mind. God's story of how he dealt with King Saul for his rebellion and disobedience. What, what examples are we looking at? We want to look at a few examples where God looked and said, What more could I have done for my vineyard, but you brought forth wild grapes? I want to give you a few specific men by name that God did something special for. And when he looked for grapes, he got wild grapes. And he asks why. First Samuel, he did this to King Saul. He's going to do it to David as well. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 17. And Samuel said, this is for the, from the Lord. When thou wast little in thine own sight, King Saul. I'm interjecting those two words to help you understand. When thou wast little in thine own sight, King Saul. Wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? When you were that timid little high school boy, Though tall, that was nothing of a leader. But God made you a leader by giving you a new heart and you became a new man. And he ordained you and brought you to a coronation and had all of Israel united under you. And you became a king when God did all that for you. And you went on a journey and he gave you a little assignment toward the Amalekites. Why didn't you do it? The Lord is measuring us. The Lord measured King Saul. He flunked here, and he had flunked earlier in his life, and he lost everything. His family was messed up, he lost the throne, his son lost the throne, and it was given to a man better than him named David. As the, That's how the Lord describes the transaction. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's go ahead and get David in here. 
Oh, the Lord brings these things to bear on us. When we give an account of our lives, the Lord's going to give an account of what He's done for us. Because the Bible says it all the way through. This is what I did for you. I'd, he's done so many things. Naturally, physically, financially, nationally, politically, domestically, spiritually most of all. What have we given him back? David has committed adultery. He's being confronted by Nathan the prophet. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. After the analogy he had given. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. That's a huge thing. Promoted from among millions to be the leader of God's people. I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Was David oftentimes in fear for his own life? Did God deliver him over and over with literal last-minute deliverances of his life, like a javelin thudding into the wall beside his head? I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house. All the servants, everything that Saul had built up as a king by previous taxation, taxation, I gave it to you. I gave you King Saul's wives, the widow women that King Saul left behind when he committed suicide in the battlefield, I gave to you and into your bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. Remember, it took two years for him to get to ten tribes the eleven tribes, to unite with Judah to make David king. And listen to this. And if that had been too little, if, I, if that wouldn't have been enough to have a vineyard grow good grapes, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Whatever you thought you needed to serve me, I'd have given it to you. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Amnon. And then he goes on to describe the judgment that's coming on David. What more could... Do you, look at that example. Look what I gave you, David. And you know there was a whole lot more he had given David. Did David have a relationship with God that was second to none? Did David have the Holy Spirit within him for his whole life? David was blessed so abundantly... Was David born in the city of David? Just go on and on with David's life. Was David delivered out of the hands of a lion and a bear? All these different things, and the Lord says, I'd have given you anything else you needed. You know what we have to say? We don't need anything else. We have been given enough, and we should be able to serve the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, do not let us be like Saul or David. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 16. Second Chronicles chapter 16. We had Asa mentioned to us by our brother Stephen just a few minutes ago that in his old age, he sought the physicians for a problem with his feet instead of to the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 16. This man had a great revival in chapter 15. You've heard me refer to it. I love this revival in 15. But here in 16, what more could I have done to you Ace of the vineyard, why did you bring forth wild grapes? How big was the host God brought against Asa? The biggest army listed in the Old Testament. One million Ethiopians. One million. And the Lord gave him a great victory. But when he faced another enemy in his life, he made an alliance with the king of Syria for military help instead of relying on the Lord. Look at verse Seven. Verses 1 through 6 of the fact that he went and made an alliance with the king of Assyria.
for military support instead of going to the Lord after the Lord earlier in his career had given him a victory over a million Ethiopians. Verse 7, at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Assyria, king of Syria, escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host, with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. And how did Asa respond? Horribly. Then Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. That is not the way to respond to the messenger of God and to the message of God that you have failed. God did everything for you and you should have remembered what he's done in the past because he can do that again in the future when you're facing difficult situations. These are, these are bad examples. Let me give you a good example. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge. That if one died for all, then we're all dead. And they which henceforth should live, should not live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them. That's the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, he reasons from what God had done for him. If one died for all, that is, if Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death, then that means I deserve to die. But he died in my place so that I could live. Therefore, the life that I have as a result of his death should be lived for him who died for me. Is that logical? Can we be logical and rational enough to understand that that is two plus two equals four? Praise it. Yes, praise the Lord. That it should be so simple for us. That's a good example. You know Hezekiah, don't you? Did Hezekiah get 15 extra years from the Lord? Did he, did he repay the benefit? No, he did not. He misused that benefit. And the Bible tells us about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Brethren, let's apply this right now to our hearts, to our lives. The Bible tells you, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Self-examination is what we all have to do. It is what David did. It is what made David great in the sight of the Lord. And we need to do it. Examine ourselves. Where do I fall short of what I've heard today about wild grapes? What part of my life is wild grapes? Where do I need to change my cluster of grapes to make it more precious, pleasant, luscious, delicious in the sight of the Lord? Everything we've studied so far is the Old Testament and Israel. We have been blessed far more. Brother Lou wanted to get me at break time and tell me about an experience he had in the last couple of days about talking to a man who was trying to press the Old Testament upon him. But the Lord led him to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where 2 Corinthians chapter 3 lists repeatedly that there was glory in the Old Testament but that the New Testament is more glorious by every measure. Therefore, if the Old Testament was glorious, and God considered that doing all that I could for my vineyard, we are accountable for more because He's done more for this vineyard, hasn't He? 
Therefore, in the book of Hebrews, the warnings were, Let us not neglect so great a salvation, that the first was spoken unto them, and he that in every transgression received a just recompense of reward, of how much sore punishment, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden the Son of God underfoot. They hadn't had Jesus die for them yet. We have had Jesus die for us, and we've been told about it in the gospel of the apostles, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we owe more. So as we take the application right now and, and apply it to us, we owe more than the Jews owed under the Old Testament. And the judgment will be more severe because Hebrews teaches us that repeatedly. So whatever you read in Deuteronomy 32, and it is quite violent. It is quite harsh. It is quite severe. But whatever you read there, we have more obligation and greater consequences and more severity against us if we neglect the great salvation that we have in the New Testament and are not sweet grapes for the God of heaven. Do not ever think that under the New Testament is a more lenient form of worshiping God because that is not the case. Our God is a consuming fire is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, but it's quoted in Hebrews 12, 29. And it's referring to the fact that if we don't take advantage of the grace and the kingdom that God has given us and use it wisely right now, we are guilty and will fall under the condemnation of Deuteronomy 4, 24. But it also says right there in 27 and 28 that the judgment will be greater because we've sinned against greater blessings. There's more been done for this vineyard than was done for that vineyard. Therefore, we owe more. Therefore, our joy ought to be greater. Our dancing ought to be a little more intense than David's. Our prayers ought to be a little more fervent than Solomon's. Oh, I just set the bar pretty high, didn't I? David danced with all his might. And if you read Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, oh, wonderful prayer. But the Lord, we need to step it up. For the Lord's done more for us than he did for them. We know more than they knew. We are very blessed indeed. So much more could be said on that subject. If Israel was held liable for the abundance of all things, how about us? If you go home today on a hot day and drop some ice into your glass, remember that Solomon did not have an ice maker. Unless somebody brought across a chunk across the Mediterranean Sea from the Alps. And it was mixed with sawdust and bugs. You have a nice, everything, we have so many blessings. You know, and these are the least. If I would mention ice, that is the least. He didn't have ice cream. If you have ice cream today, but those are the least. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's converted our hearts and souls. He saved us from the worship of Molech, which he didn't save Solomon from. He let Solomon go and have his way with his false religions from his wives. How much do we have? You know what Paul would say in Romans 8.32? He would say, If he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How much do we have? All things. How free is it? Freely given by God. How sure is it? He's already given his son the greatest gift of all. Any other gift is Small in comparison, and arguing from the greater to the lesser, anything else is a certainty because he's already given his son. Those are the blessings we have of the New Testament. They're glorious blessings. Therefore, we owe God the more. 
Do you know the Bible says that the goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance? God's goodness is not to lead us to complacency. God's goodness is not to lead us to mediocrity. God's goodness is not to lead you to lackadaisical, lukewarm Christianity. God's goodness is to lead us to repentance. Romans 2.4 When He's good to you, you ought to be examining your life to get more sin out of it, not thinking, the Lord's approving of the way I'm living with a little bit of sin in my life. Are you with me on that? God's goodness should lead us to repentance. Where are the nine? Are you thankful as you should be? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ have to say, where are the nine? Were there not ten lepers cleansed? But there's only this one Samaritan that's back here groveling in the dirt and crying out with a loud voice of thanksgiving for me healing him? The Lord's healed you and me from greater blemishes than leprosy, greater diseases than leprosy. He's healed us from sin and death. He's delivered us from the power of the grave. We can mock death. We can have fun at funerals by praising the God of heaven. We've been so abundantly blessed. What are you giving back to Him? Are you good grapes or wild grapes? What are wild grapes? Wild grapes are the sons and daughters of God who are rebellious, disobedient, discontent, fruitless, bored with worshiping God, worldly, lukewarm, Lacking their first love. Giving formal service, but heartless in coming into the house of God. Rebellious, disobedient, discontent, lukewarm, losing your first love. That is despicable in the sight of God who is looking for good grapes to make a great vintage of wine. And we give him wild grapes because we're lukewarm. You say, well, lukewarm isn't that serious. Let's take another metaphor then. Instead of wine from a vineyard with wild grapes, let's take lukewarm water. Hot water can be good if there's Hershey's cocoa in it. Cold water can be good when you're hot and thirsty. But lukewarm water can make you throw up. And the Lord said, because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Does that sound similar to Isaiah 5, that I will tear down the hedge around your vineyard until it's all eaten up? Lukewarm Christianity is wild grapes. Lukewarm. You're not hot, fervent, intense, excited, moved, motivated, and eager to worship God. You're bored, begrudging the time, begrudging the effort, and fighting against being enthusiastic and full of praise and worship. You've lost your first love, Jesus Christ told the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. I have somewhat against thee. He tastes the grape of Ephesus. He tasted the grape of the vineyard of Ephesus. What more could he have done to his vineyard at Ephesus? Who was the founder of their church? The Apostle Paul. He blessed them abundantly. Yet when he tasted the grapes... It was a wild grape because they had lost their first love. And he said, repent quickly or else I will come and take his candlestick out of his place. If you do not train your children in the fear of the Lord, you are wild grapes. Because in both Testaments, fathers are told to teach their children and their children's children the very things we've talked about this day. Deuteronomy 32 is your life. 
and it is to be taught to children and households are commanded. And fathers are commanded to command their households to observe, to do all these things. If you don't do it, you're a wild grape. The Lord tastes the cluster from your vine and his teeth are set on edge. Because you've been given so much and you've worried about other things for your children instead of teaching them the true riches of God's word and not requiring obedience to his commandments. If you deal treacherously with your wife in any way that causes her to be less than the happy wife that she ought to be, that's what it's called in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. If you deal treacherously with your wife, if you're not a good listener at times, if you're not tender, if you're not forgiving, if you're not nourishing, if you're not cherishing, you are a wild grape. Because what more could God have done for you than to give you a converted wife? That is such a wonderful blessing. And Malachi 2 addresses that very pointedly. You are wild grapes. He says, I arranged a marriage for you. Do you know, we're all recipients of arranged marriages. God arranged our marriages. If you deal treacherously with your converted wife, you're a wild grape. If you despise the message or the messenger of God, you're wild grapes. The Bible says, despise not prophesyings. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 20. What do noble grapes do? Noble grapes receive the word with all readiness of mind. Amen. And search the scriptures daily to see if those things are so. If you've lost your first love or you're lukewarm, you know both passages from the book of Revelation. If you sleep or daydream in church, you are wild grapes. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? What did the church of God do in Nehemiah chapter 8? Didn't they stand there all all day from 9 o'clock, from early in the morning until noon, hearing the word of God read to them? Didn't they rejoice and have a celebration afterwards for understanding the word of God that had been preached to them? If you sleep or daydream, the Lord knows that you're daydreaming. The Lord can see that you're sleeping. Go try it on the governor. Go try it on our president. Whether you love our president or not, if you were in his presence, you shouldn't be staring at the wall sleeping or daydreaming. You should be attentively sitting on the edge of your chair, respectfully as possible, waiting to do whatever he wants you to do. Unless it's contrary to the word of God. Try it on your governor. Try it on a president. Try it on a good master. Try it on a good father. You won't get away with it. But if you sleep or daydream in church, you're showing that to the Lord. If you even think about fornication, you're wild grapes. Because you know what the will of God is for your life? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. And if you go beyond and defraud any brother in a matter of sex, who's going to be the judge? The Lord judges all such. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8 is all about real sanctification. If he tastes a cluster of your grapes and you even fantasize, think about, read about, watch it on television, get excited about it, hang around with them, that commit fornication, you're a wild grape. Touches every part of our lives. It fits so well with what we covered about the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Know ye not that ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you're not thankful for everything, you're a wild grape. Because do do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you.
if you're not thankful all the time, if you're not thankful for everything, you're a wild grape. God tastes of the cluster from your life, your family's life, and there's very little thanksgiving there. And it's a wild grape to him. What more could have been done to my vineyard? Can't you think of anything to be thankful for? Let some of the rest of us help you. There's so many things to be thankful for. I do believe that every one of us should be able to say with some degree of honesty, we are the most blessed men on earth. Can't you start listening? They're fantastic. It'll choke you if you start. We have that wonderful song, Count Your Many Blessings. Name them one by one. You'll get hoarse before you finish. What are sweet grapes? Oh, what is a sweet cluster to the Lord? Those that delight in Him, those that love Him, are full of joy, full of peace, full of praise. They love unity. They love righteousness. They love what's doing right. They'll sacrifice anything for the Lord's sake. Time, habits, comfort zones, none of it's a problem. They'll separate from the world. They don't mind one bit blowing off ungodly, unworldly friends or ungodly and unworldly activities, places, music, books, magazines, subscriptions, memberships. It doesn't matter. They'll willingly sacrifice for the Lord's sake. They love to give thanks. They love to worship. They're full of zeal. The Lord loves those who glory in Him more than glory in the things that men glory in. Men glory in riches, wisdom, and strength. The Lord loves those that glory in Him and the things He delights in. Righteousness, judgment, and mercy that He shows in the earth. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. The Lord loves those who forgive and love others. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. That verse, Ephesians 5.1, is to be used with what follows and what comes before in the last part of chapter 4, and it's about loving others. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. God's loved us. How in the world can we hold back our love from others? The Lord loves those, let's say it again, who love others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when he listed the great gifts that Jesus Christ gave the church, apostles first, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and works himself all the way down to the lowly gift of speaking in tongues, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, then he said, Yet show I unto you a more excellent way. There is a more excellent way to serve God than being an apostle. Do you know what it is? It's to love. Because then chapter 13 comes. The very next verse is 1 Corinthians 13.1. The last verse of 1 Corinthians 13, Now abide the faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. If you can charitably forgive those that hurt you, if you can charitably forgive those that you have bitterness in your heart against, if you can forgive, if you can overlook, if you can forbear, if you can get rid of grudges, if you can get back bowels of mercies and bowels of compassion, God delights in your grapes. He loves that because He's that way to us. He's forgiven us 10,000 talents and we hold grudges for 100 pence. The worst thing that anybody can do to you in this life is only 100 pence. The greatest of these is charity. Oh, you want to be full of love. Love is the greatest grace. You know, should we preach six sermons on the, that love is the greatest? We've done it before. Love is the greatest by every measure in the New Testament. The Arminian says that faith is the greatest. But faith is not the greatest. The devils believe and tremble. Love is the greatest. Devils do not love. Love is the greatest evidence of the grace of God in a life. That you can forgive somebody that wrongs you. 
that you can blow it off. That's the glory of a man. And that is the glory of God. And that is the glory of the cluster. And when God tastes and sees and hears your love towards someone that offends you, which is the hardest time to show love, He is pleased. He knows He has a good vintage. The Lord loves those who despise the world and will not touch it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, when it says to come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing, and it says seven things that we ought to do toward the world of ungodliness that's around us, did you know that there are seven promises given of what God will do toward that cluster of grapes? Because that is what He delights in. He loves us showing His detestation and hatred of the world. Because He hates the world. And when we detest and hate the world, He loves that cluster. Therefore, we have the first verse of 2 Corinthians 7. Having therefore these promises. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's why we ought to do it. Because we want to be a pleasing cluster to the Lord. What more could I have done for my vineyard than was done? The Lord loves those who love wisdom. You know, in Proverbs 8, 17, it says, I love them that love me. You love wisdom and God will love you. When he tastes a grape, he loves to see a grape and he loves to have the flavor of someone that loves him. I love them that love me and they that seek me early shall find me. The Lord loves those who keep his commandments. Jesus said, if a man love me and keep my commandments, my father and I will come and abide with that man. We will make ourselves manifest to that man. That's a cluster that the Lord delights in. In Micah chapter 6, what does the Lord require of thee? But to walk humbly before thy God and to love mercy and to do justice. Wonderful passage. See, we can read these things and we can know that's what God delights in and that makes us sweet grapes. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it talks about a group of saints that though they were being persecuted, rejoiced with joy unspeakable and full of glory because they were thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was something that pleased God very much. That they were looking forward to the coming of His Son. What music do you choose? Sweet or wild? Sweet or wild? Music that when God looks into your life and tastes your cluster of grapes, He finds you listening to the music of His enemies? He finds you listening to the music of the Philistines that are played, that is played on every radio station in Greenville except for one or two? What music are you listening to? Sweet or wild? What entertainment are you choosing? Is it sweet or wild? Is it with God and His saints or with His enemies and delighting in them? What friends do you choose? Sweet or wild? There are two sins when you choose worldly friends. You reject friendship with God's people and you choose fools to be your companions. That's a double-headed sin. I know, brethren. It's a little late. Hebrews chapter 12 My plans did not turn out again. Hebrews chapter 12. And for that I'm sorry. But for the word of God I am not sorry. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to these words. These are are words of the New Testament. This, This is a good grape that doesn't want to be a wild grape. Listen carefully. A good grape cluster that doesn't want to be a wild grape cluster. Hebrews 12, 14. Follow peace with all men. And holiness. Without which, no man shall see the Lord. Two things so far. Peacemaker, love a holy life. Verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness 
springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Third thing, this man is diligent to make, to examine his life and make sure nothing springs up in the way of bitterness, bitterness, wild grapeness, like a wild grape, and thereby that would trouble you, and thereby many would be defiled. Any way of unrighteousness. Verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. That's when you skip church and you have no good reason for it. For one morsel of meat sold his birthright. we got to apply these things to us. You don't have a birthright and you're not hungry for meat. But for one morsel of meat he sold his birthright. What do we give away? We don't read the Bible because we're too busy? We don't pray because we're too busy? Don't be profane like Esau. You know what it says about him? Verse 17, For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. He begged his daddy for a blessing. He fell down at Isaac's knees and begged for a blessing. But Jacob already had it. The little blessing that Esau got was very small. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. We cannot let that happen. Do you know how the Apostle Paul would make the argument that we've made all day? Isaiah would make it this way. What more could have been done to my vineyard? Paul makes it this way. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It is so reasonable for us to give our 70 years... In sacrifice to Him, you'll be the happiest of all. It's win-win with the Lord. Thank you for pointing that out earlier. Not only are His commandments our duty, His commandments are for our good. and His commandments are pleasant. They're not grievous. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He, he gives rest for souls that will come to Him. That is your reasonable service. And what's the appeal made to? In Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. What's the mercies of God? Everything we've talked about today, with an emphasis on what's in Romans chapters 1 through 11. The mercies of God in our salvation. In what ways are you wild, brethren? Examine yourselves. Where should you repent and reform? Do it today. Your life can get worse. You say, I don't have any problems. Your life can get terrible. In a heartbeat, literally. Turn to the Lord and bring forth the good grapes that He deserves this day. God hates the pleasure-loving brand of Christianity that is so common and popular in our country. Beware of it. Repent of it. There's been such blessing given to us and so much more is offered. If we will but cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, all the promises of God in Second Corinthians 6 can be ours. A new crop of grapes for God's glory and pleasure is easy. If you'll go and read Isaiah 63, that's the passage that says, I will remember the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Go and read the next ten verses in Isaiah 63. Go read Hosea chapter 14. Go read Jeremiah 31. In all three of those places, God shows how easy it is to repent and become a sweet cluster of grapes for Him by His own mercy and faithfulness to forgive us our sins when we confess them unto Him. We don't have to go pay penance of a year's time of doing rosaries. All we have to do is confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Then He immediately we are changed from a wild cluster of grapes to a sweet grape in His mouth. 
Go read those passages I just told you. I'm out of time. What are they? They're Isaiah 63, they're Jeremiah 31, and they're Hosea chapter 14. Bring with you words. I will show him mercy. Ephraim bemoaned himself, slapped his thigh, and said, I've been foolish. My heart, my bowels are turned toward Ephraim already in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's wonderful, brethren. What more could the Lord have done for you than he's already done? We, do, we owe him so much. And do you know what? In, in my life's experiences, and I have been where coliseums have been shook to the core, and I get excited about a lot of things in my life. But the greatest joy is being excited about the Lord God of heaven and his son Jesus Christ and all that is contained in the word of God. There is no more satisfying or fulfilling joy than being excited about those things and doing it with the Lord's people. That is being a sweet grape cluster to our God. Brother Stephen, close up with a song.